welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 77th episode, I'll be talking to writer Timmy Howard, author of Assassinistas, Hackslash Resurrection, and a number of other comics, about the crow and being a baby goth. Along the way, we discuss where one files atrocities in the library, the life and times of immortal Dewey, and the proudest damn goths on the planet. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. Editor's note, this has been a long time coming, and for that I am truly sorry. For anyone who hasn't been following the Twitter feed, uh, Kimiko, Hero, and I had to move house with like a week and a half's notice. And then when we moved to the new place, there was no internet for like a month. So unfortunately, I was not able to put up any new episodes of the show, and it hurt my soul not to do it. But now we are back connected, and I can start digging into the backlog of episodes I recorded during that very chaotic time. Thank you so much to everyone who checked in and sent really nice messages to me and the rest of the family. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Teeny Howard, and I get to write comic books for a living. And that's very cool. Yeah, I guess the things that people might know me best for is I work on the Rick and Morty comics. I've written a series called Pocket Like You Stole It that just came out in paperback form. And I've written a few issues for the main series, including one where I got to talk about summer and bisexuality. I got to do some really cool stuff there, and I've also gotten to write for Power Rangers. As far as my own work, I write a book called Assassinistas for Black Crown over at IDW. And I've also written some books like The Skeptics, and I'm writing a book called Euthanauts. Right now I write the current Hackslash book from Image. I get a really fun job. You've written some WWE comics as well, as I learned recently. I have, yeah. I write, I've written a few little backup stories for the WWE comics, which is a lot of fun for me, because I'm a wrestling fan who didn't get into wrestling until she was an adult. So for me, it's fun to get because they'll often ask you to write about stuff that's meaningful to you or that you like respond to. And a lot of people write about, oh, like the first time I saw Ultimate Warrior, like, you know, the first time I saw, you know, whoever their favorite vintage wrestler is. But for me, I'm like, oh, like, you know, WrestleMania 32 or like Stephanie and Triple H came out in that crazy outfit or like, oh my God, the first time <laughs> I saw Finn Balor, or the first time I saw Asuka, like my favorite wrestlers are all like, I mean, I remember I was aware of wrestling as a kid and I've gone back and like watched a lot of older stuff because I feel like it's like the same thing when you get into comics, you know, it's like even if you start reading like whatever X-Men book is out right now, if you get into liking it, you're like, oh, I want to go back and read the old X-Men books. Like it's kind of the same thing with wrestling for me. Like I do have an awareness of like older wrestling. It's not anything that like I have growing up. It's like stuff I've gone back and been like, oh, I'm totally interested in professional wrestling. Yeah, professional wrestling rules. And the thing is, I could say I'm in, like, if my wrestling watching or fandom was a person, it would be 27 and wondering what it was doing with its life. But I can tell you right now, the first time I saw Asuka, 
was of an extremely formative experience. Like even just when she first came out, I mean, I had some friends over to watch the takeover and I just started yelling. I just like, it was just, it was so impactful and fantastic. And same with the, I mean, hell, the first time that Finn Balor came out as the demon to help Hideo Itami against the Ascension and everyone in the ring sold it like a literal demon had yeah. come up from hell. And suddenly all his body language and his entrances made complete sense. And you all go, oh my God, this is happening. <laughs> right. And I think part of what I love so much about Finn Balor is that for the longest time, he very much played the like doe-eyed ingenue when he wasn't in demon mode, which just sold the demon thing so much better because it made him look like a freaking like anime character. You know, he was like this like pretty sweet boy who would turn into this like monster. And then like now he's getting like a little more heelish in his attitude where he's like a little more confrontational so it's like some people are like oh it's like shades of prince devitt i'm like i think it's i don't think it's that i don't think they're leaning toward i think i think they know that he can do that well and so they're encouraging to do it but i think that the wwe story of it is that you know like of course the demon over time will begin to you know influence him and who he is and how he acts yeah totally it's all very silly but i you know i feel like if i get paid to write about it i'm allowed to get really invested in it <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I didn't even get paid for it, and I'm super invested in it. <laughs> I once heard Finn Balor in his non-demon guys described as an Irish ninja ballerina, and I'm like, yes, That's that makes so complete perfect. sense. That's exactly what he is. Yeah. <laughs> He's an Irish ninja ballerina who occasionally gets overtaken by, by an Asian demon yeah. with dreadlocks. Yeah, with the, which is so funny to me, too, because it's like when I was like a little like back when goth clubs were a thing I attended, I would totally wear like those like cyber locks hair things that he wears. Like, oh, yes. And so it's like it's so funny to me because I'm like, oh, my God, I used to like make those with my girlfriends and like wear them clubbing with mini skirts <laughs> and like fishnets and to see him like crawling around with it. I'm like, oh, bless your heart, cutie. <laughs> Well, that's a nice segue. Let's start with the basics then. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I was born and raised uh, in the Washington, D.C. area on the East Coast of the U.S. So Northern Virginia. But if you say Virginia, people think that you're from like Richmond. And the area I'm from is actually much more like a suburb of Washington, D.C. Because Washington, D.C. is really tiny, right? It's like Washington, D.C. proper is like, I think it's actually smaller than Magic Kingdom in Disney World. Like it's, <laughs> wow. it's crazy small. So a lot of people who live in D.C. and work in D.C. and are part of the surrounding culture of running D.C. don't live in D.C. proper. There's a whole huge sprawling like suburban area around it. And it's got the worst traffic and not a lot of fun. It's like everyone's hobby is sitting in traffic, I feel like, up there. <laughs> it's kind of weird and stodgy. It's just like, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I don't love it, but I'm glad I... I never thought of myself growing up as the kind of person who was like, I'm going to get out of this place. Like when I graduated high school, I didn't want to go away for college. Like I was like not ready to leave home. And now that I've left home, I'm like, I oh, God, I'm so glad I left home. <laughs> like I'm so glad I left where I grew up because it was not the right place for me to continue living, though it was a perfectly fine place to grow up. I have some of those feelings. I spent a lot of my childhood in a place called Fredericton, New Brunswick, which was a very small city on the east coast of Canada. It's every once in a while when I go back through, like, because I have enough Facebook people that I have some from the initial thing where you're just like, I'm just going to add everybody. Sure. And then you look and they're the sort of folks who, bless them, will have pictures of their cars or trucks as their Facebook profile photo. Oh, gosh. Yep. Doesn't that just paint a picture? Yeah, it does. Seeing as I live in North Carolina now, it absolutely does. <laughs> And you just look and you think, hmm, yeah, I'm good. I'm good here in Sydney, Australia, far from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Yeah. I have an American friend who expatriated to Sydney. 
Oh, really? She, cool. I, I think she, her boyfriend lived there. I don't know if he, I actually, I don't, I've never met him. And so I don't know if he's an Australian or he also expatriated there, but they both live there now and she loves it. Yeah. I've, I've been here for a little over 15 years now. And when people hear me talk, they are like, oh, when did you come over from Canada? Or actually, no, that's a lie. What they say is, where do you come up from the States? And then they immediately apologize when they find out I'm Canadian. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I'm not 22 <laughs> anymore. I'm not going to arc up and get upset with you. Sure. So then they say, oh, when did you come over? And I go, 15 years ago. And they just kind of blink and they go, but you still sound foreign? Yes, I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, some people accommodate to the accent that of wherever mm-hmm. they're living and some people don't. I mean, it is funny. Like, I don't necessarily know the why or how, but it is funny, though, that I know a lot of people that have moved around from, like, from one English-speaking country to another, like U.S., Canada, Australia, England, you know, Ireland, like, have have moved around. I tend to find that a lot of them have, like, kind of the same, like, I can best describe it as, like, a vague accent. Like, to me, Mm -hmm. you don't have, like, an accent, but I'm like, oh, like, when I hear you speak, I'm like, okay, you don't, this is going to sound really awful you don't you don't sound american like yeah i don't mean that you i don't mean that americans should sound a specific way but it's like you don't sound like you're from for example where i live but then again i don't sound like i'm from where i live because i don't have a southern accent (laughs) yeah i think you'll find especially with people who move around in different countries there's sort of an unconscious code switching happening when you get around people who sound like from where you're from your voice will start to mutate and change and get more that way yep my husband when we go to visit his family who live my husband does not sound like he has a southern accent and he doesn't really because he's like a theater and film guy so a lot of it is because when he was like a teenager he like consciously covered it up so he doesn't sound like someone that has an accent now but if we go home to visit his family who live in central north carolina by the end of the weekend i can barely understand (laughs) (laughs) it's like by the end of the weekend they all have like i mean his, his family still they have thick southern accents in a particular way of speaking but even i like when i go home my parents are like they say that i sound like i have an accent now and i'm like i don't think i do at all but it's also it's hard to tell when you're like podcasting is hard right because you're like conscious of what you're saying at least you should, most of us are <laughs> i try to be yeah. which is different from when you're just like having a chat with someone you know especially if you've been like drinking or whatever and you know <laughs> or you're tired or around people with the same accent or whatever at one point i came back from canada after being there for just short of two weeks and I got into the car with my girlfriend and started talking and talking about, oh, you know, the flight was a mess and oh, thanks for picking me up and all these things. And apparently she's like, I haven't understood a word you've said for the past 20 minutes. Oh my God. Because especially West Coast Canadians run their words together a lot and don't enunciate and speak very, very quickly. And I've just been in the company of my family for two weeks. So I came back with a mouthful of marbles and not clipping off any of my words the way I speak. Sure. <laughs> Growing up in D.C., what sort of kid were you? Uh, Weird. So I'm an only child, and my parents were really young when they had me. So I wasn't super huge on playing with other kids. Like, I always wanted to, which probably lent me kind of a weird, like, eagerness when it came to approaching other kids, which probably put them off, which is why (laughs) maybe everyone was kind of mean to me, because I think I was just, like, really waiting to have a kid to play with, and so when I met anyone, I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna talk nonstop, you're my best friend now, and (laughs) I think that probably put a lot of people off, but I spent a lot of time alone. I still spend a lot of time alone. I like being alone, because I like stories and I like just like disassociating and going up inside my own head Uh, and I learned that as a kid so I didn't have any siblings my parents were really young and my parents both worked full-time so the thing that I did the most of as a kid was read I was like a voracious reader I learned to read really young and I just never stopped 
I used to get in trouble for school because I would read books and I would hide books in my desk so I could keep reading them during class. <laughs> and like they would call my parents and my parents like never really disciplined me. They would just be like, she's smart. Why are you complaining? So I'm like kind of, uh, I don't know. I was, I was just kind of like a strange kid. I mean, I, it's like I can't even I can't say I was quiet because I wasn't. I've never no one would ever describe me as quiet. <laughs> but I definitely was like in my own head a lot and I still am and yeah just really really into reading like more than anything else I was into books that was my favorite thing it's just I, I was even I, I really wasn't even super into movies except for like with few exceptions I mean I loved like Little Mermaid and Star Wars and stuff and I watched cartoons but I really just wanted to like be with a book all the time to the point where it was like my equivalent of like a blankie or like a teddy bear was that like I had to have a book with me and it didn't have to be a specific book just I felt like anxious if I couldn't grab something to read like I would read shampoo bottles in the shower. Like oh. reading was just like my crutch for everything. Astute listeners from two weeks ago will say we literally just talked about how kids these days will never have to read a shampoo bottle. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, and they don't know how lucky they are. Oh God, yeah. But like now I buy really nice shampoo because I know about all the ingredients in shampoo that aren't good for your hair. So there you go. But yeah, I, I tried to come up with a theory around being told the text was important. Yeah. Reading is important. You should read. You should do these things. And so your eye naturally seeks it out. Yeah, you're there and you're just like, uh, 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 and then it locks on and you're reading. Well, and it was just so weird too because I felt like every other kid was getting the message of like, read a damn book. And so I was like, cool, that's all I want to do. So I'm good. And it was like, no, we expect you to do other things too. And I was like, well, that's bullshit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you're telling everyone to read and I already do that. So just leave me alone and let me read. Like... (laughs) Like, I think I probably would have done really well in, like, I don't want to say, like, Montessori because I don't really know that much about that type of education. But I, I mean in the sense of it being, like, child-led. Self-directed. Yeah. Like, mm. I totally, I think, would have done really well as a kid if they had just been, like, go nuts. Because I basically did that anyway. I was just, like, not really interested in what I was being taught in school. And my dad is a really voracious reader. So he always encouraged me to read and, like, I would read whatever books he had. And, yeah, it was just kind of like, I think I would have done really well, though, if I'd been, like, in an environment where people were just like, okay, we'll let you decide what you want to read and we'll support you and give you more of that. Which, like, my parents totally did, but in, like, a more formal educational sense, I think that would have been probably pretty good for me. See, I think if they put me into an environment where they said, all right, you decide what you spend your time on, I would have ended up the first person writing a PhD on Transformers. It just would have been like, all right, well, I have all access to subjects and everything that I can do. I'm just going to read about what I want to read about, and then I would never have changed or challenged myself. I can look in the mirror and know myself. I would have just spun in my little circle. Sure. And everyone could have left me alone. See, like, that's weird. Like, even as a kid, I feel like I was super into nonfiction, and I still am. So I don't know. But I mean, I I did always want to read about, like, disasters and plagues. (laughs) Like, murders and missing shipwrecks and serial killers and... So how did that start? Did you like get handed a book on the Flying Dutchman or a book of ghost stories or something and you just took off from there? My dad is like a history buff, right? And so like at a pretty early age, I had access to books about things like the Black Plague and the Holocaust and the various wars and atrocities that either happened to humanity or that we've enacted upon each other. And so that kind of like awakened my morbid side at a pretty early age. And I just went to the library a lot. Where's your atrocity section? Right. No, I remember these, like, I, I would I would look at this collection of books that was on my library, and I'll never forget, like, I can picture the library in my head, and I can picture where the books are. They were on top of a shelf, like, 
in between some bookends, but it was like a series of books about disasters and like atrocities, literally. Like it was like, cause it wasn't just like, it was like things like the Bhopal chemical leak in India. And then it would be like the Irish potato famine. And then it would be like the children's crusade. So it was like a series for children about horrible stuff. And I like <laughs> ate it up. Like I loved it. I read all of them. And then I was like, cool, more of this. And then I started looking at like the big kid library and finding books like about true crime and witchcraft and aliens. And I just fell head over heels in love with like mysteries and weird stuff and like on some level like I write fiction because I like writing narratives and I like processing them and I totally do take in a lot of fiction like I love good stories but I also like I have a real love for like great nonfiction. I just I have a real love for the truth when it's super weird <laughs> well I mean if you think about it good nonfiction has a narrative as well exactly you know, any documentary it's is telling you a story yeah so, yeah but I love the idea of like taking a bunch of like I love the idea of making a documentary right of just like finding something interesting and filming it for months and months and months and then looking at it and being like so what's the story what's the theme where's my red string I can pull through this yeah and be like, yeah that's my narrative and that's kind of how I write like when I think of characters I just kind of think of them existing and I think of how to like pull a narrative out of who they are yeah and you've written for Hackslash which is yeah. a series that I hold dear to my heart so was there a time where you went from, oh, I'm reading about regular atrocities to I'm going to watch fictional ones and get into horror movies? Or was that just sort of a, a project that fell into your lap? Well, with Hackslash, it's like I was a fan of Tim and of specifically of Hackslash, but also a big fan of just Tim's work in general. And I had sent him an essay I'd written about one of his other books and he really liked it. And he was like, wow, like you really have a good eye for like theme and narrative and stuff like that. And then he also found out I was a comic writer and he asked me to do that. And but I mean, I'm, I've like been a horror fan my whole life. And a big part of it, I think, is just that for whatever reason, I've always just been really drawn to it aesthetically. I like red and black. <laughs> I like you know <laughs> shiny black xenomorphs and red gore like i like <laughs> you know, and i like you know vampires i like gothic aesthetic stuff i like mysteries and murder i like fear i like being scared i like not knowing the answer to things in a safe environment it's like for me horror movies are like the equivalent of like a roller coaster where it's like it's fun and scary but when you're done you're okay right like but you get to be like momentarily enjoyed by the thrill of it like that's horror movies to me it's like you know enjoy like the thrill and get into it and like scream and bite your nails and then when it's over it's like whoo that was fun it's like and we're done i can go back to my regular life right i can go back to reading about real atrocities now <laughs> when i got into horror movies like properly i think it was in, like my first year of university or like last year of high school because for when i was a kid i was so scared of horror movies and i hadn't actually seen that many of them but i was more scared of the concept or how some kid would tell you about it at school mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing and I would get them all in my head and get all worked up about it and, and get anxious about it. And then later, when I started to actually get into them, in the post-Scream world where suddenly a lot of things were back on VHS that had been missing for a while, I was able to go to my video store and just load up and be like, okay, well, these are not so scary and kind of overcome that that way. I love that you bring up Scream because that was really important to me too. Like that was a movie that kind of let me know that like horror movies were like safe and okay and I was allowed to enjoy them. Like they definitely, I while I had seen like some classic horror movies and I loved like certain things with horror elements like Interview with the Vampire, really I felt like in a lot of ways took Scream for me to be like, 
oh, this stuff is accessible to me. I'm allowed to go watch. You know, like in a weird way, it felt inaccessible to me until Scream, which to me was like, oh, well, this is a horror movie made for me, for my generation and stuff. But I'd also, I already loved like Interview with the Vampire and The Craft and those movies. But in a lot of ways, Scream was totally like a gateway horror movie, I think, for a lot of people. And I defend Scream. Scream is still a good movie. (laughs) I agree. 100%. I don't know about all the sequels, but the first one is still... Same with Saw. Like, I will defend the first one hardcore because I think the first one's an amazing movie and we just... We don't need to talk about the sequels. Scream... My husband just walked by and mouthed, Scream 2 is good, which is not wrong. I was literally just about to say that. I was lining up to say because I was, you know, a teenager who watched movies a lot and repeatedly. And I've watched that second one a lot. And I think, yeah, it's, it's good. It is, Scream yeah. 2 is good. And it establishes that you know, Dewey cannot die. Right, yeah. Immortal Dewey. Because we need. Well, that's what the world needs. Is, what's even that actor's name? David Arquette. That's what we need. An immortal David Arquette. There can be only one goober cop. <laughs> yeah, you got Laurie Metcalf acting her ass off. That's and you've true. got Oh, what's his face? Oh, is it? Yeah, Timothy Oliphant. Oh my god, I forgot Timothy Oliphant's in that movie. Wow, I need to go watch Scream 2 again. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> And actually, there's a whole, like, cameo sequence where you've got uh, Josh Jackson and, like, Sarah Michelle Gellar and all these people just in a classroom talking about movies. And it's just like, it's just like catch-up school for kids who were working on the lot and you just turned the camera on. Right. Sit and learn your history, children. <laughs> <laughs> so initially, when you wanted to come on the show, I've been inspired by you talking about two things on War Rocket Ajax. Now, initially, I wanted to ask about... Piercing your dad's ear during the commercial break of Buffy. Yep. <laughs> and then I also wanted to talk about The Crow. So first off, I'd like to hear the full Zepreter film breakdown. How did you come to be piercing your dad's ear during the commercial break of Buffy? Also, what episode? Gosh, I don't remember what episode. I'm going to say it was like season four or five, because that's what I remember being really into Buffy, like the whole Riley the Initiative era of Buffy and Glorificus and all that like I'm gonna say it was that era it was a season four or five episode and I don't remember how old I was I mean I guess I could do the math and figure out when Buffy season four or five was on and how old I would have been at the time but I'm gonna guess that I was in like middle school because we moved into that house when I was in like fifth grade and I, I wasn't much older so I guess to also to preface it, it's like my dad is not what you think of when you think of standard dad he's a, a little bit like Homer Simpson and like a little bit the comedian from Watchmen but without some of the dark without some of the darker elements just kind of the like a little cynical and, and really into 20th century United States war history and kind of a, a dark dude but I mean so am I so yeah I just I remember that I was like watching tv and my so my name teeny is short for Christine and so my parents have always called me Chris and I remember my, my dad yelling down like Chris come here and I thought I was like in trouble or something so I was like Ugh. like what like what and he was like you know come here and I remember I'd go upstairs so I thought I was like I was in trouble or something and my dad's in the bathroom and he's like can you like can you pierce my ear <laughs> and he had talked about how he had pierced his I think he said he had pierced his sister's ear when he was younger and this was like something I'd known it was like apocryphal knowledge about my dad was that thing like he had pierced his sister's ear and I had my own ears pierced but I had gotten mine pierced at the mall <laughs> I didn't have to like sit through my dad's piercing experiments or anything no needles nice cute I remember just being like yeah Okay. I remember I like went downstairs and like watched a few more minutes of Buffy. And then I remember I got an ice cube 
and then one of the earrings that I had pierced. So when you get your ears pierced at like a mall shop with like a gun, which you're not, I guess, supposed to do, but we didn't know it was like the 90s. They pierce your ear with a, it's like a, an earring post that, that's like sharp, like a needle. It looks almost like a thumbtack. So it was like an earring that, so they don't have to like stick a needle in and, and then take the needle out and put an earring uh. in. They just like. They do it in one go. Yeah, they punch this sharp earring through your ear and then just put a back on it and tell you not to take it out for six weeks or whatever. I had that, and I figured that was the easiest way to do it, but I didn't have the gun, so I just remember icing my dad's ear, and then I had a cotton ball. And I remember distinctly that it went through the front and the back in two separate pushes. Punch, punch. <laughs> yeah, it went, like, went through the front of his ear and then came out the back of his ear. It wasn't like a clean oh, blow with an exit wound or anything. It was I, Okay, I, I need to ask the, the important question. The parent in me wants to know if you considered... The fact that you were taking something that had been in your body and then you had removed from your body and then left to sit, you know, on like a jewelry box shelf or something for however long. I put peroxide on it. Okay, fine. okay, fine. All right, continue. Or I think I burned it with a lighter or something. Yeah, I mean, we took basic hygiene. <laughs> Precautions. Precautions, yeah. We like, we You're like, I'm not an idiot. Burned it with a yes, light. I mean, Buffy was coming back on in a minute, so I was in a hurry, but I did take precautions. Yeah. <laughs> and I do remember that it took longer than the commercial break, and I, I did forego watching the rest of my episode of Buffy to continue piercing my dad's ear, which I felt was the right and loyal thing to do. <laughs> I could recall at one point helping one of my girlfriends in university because she thought her, the back of her ear was like almost closed over. And so she's like, can you just help me get this earring? And I can't quite see. I can't quite find the spot. And I remember that feeling of putting in, well, what was then a blunt hoop earring through the back that had completely healed over. And when you said that there was two punches when you put that thing through, uh-huh. like I had a vivid sense memory of feeling that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite a sound. It's not quite a feeling. Yep. It's somewhere in between like crunching ice. It's like if you've done it, you know, if, if you've ever put a, like a safety pin through your own eyebrow because you wanted to be cool or whatever. It's like if you ever pierced your own body or part of a friend's body or you know re-pierce something it's like you you know that feeling it's it's a special one it doesn't go it's similar but not akin to having an old like piercing spot like stretched out or something like it's like that in slow motion is the stretch out yeah it's like kind of that i always think of it as like it's like the human sensory version of like when you get like an old belt or buckle or something that's been wet or warped and you have to like punch it through again So the question is, how badly did it get infected? Not did it get infected, but how badly? I don't actually know if it did. I think my dad just took care of it and he kept it for a while. And then when he was done with it, he took it out like maybe a year or two later. So it was actually a successful piercing. Yeah, and they stopped calling him one-eared Bob after a while. I mean, it went away, didn't they think? Yeah, no, no, it was fine. It was fine. You know, it was the beginning and end of my professional piercing career. Semi-professional piercing career, yeah. Yeah. I had to know the full story of that because it was mentioned in passing on Ajax and then you guys moved on to yeah. other things and I'm like, wait, wait, don't you bury the lead. Tell me about piercing. <laughs> but the other thing you mentioned is you mentioned talking about the crow and how things I know as a former baby goth kid myself, the crow held a special place in my heart, not just as a Halloween costume when you couldn't think of anything else to do. Oh, yes. But 
as a film itself. So how did you come along to the crow? I'll work backwards and I'll say that. So today I live in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is interestingly enough where Brandon Lee died. Oh, no way. Mm -hmm. He died in New Hanover County Hospital, I think, which is my local hospital. They were filming The Crow in Wilmington. There's a lot of the parts of the movie, the exterior shots and everything, and a lot of the the street shots are shot in Wilmington, North Carolina. And yeah, Brandon Lee died, was shot at Screen Gem Studios here and died here. So interesting. That's not always been the case. It's just... Or it's not always been the case that I lived here. I, I moved here in the past few years, but it was just kind of an interesting link in my life. I don't know. I just, you know, like I mentioned, my dad is kind of a spooky dude and I'm kind of a spooky chick. And I kind of grew up watching a lot of movies and reading a lot of comics that he liked. And I watched, I don't know, I think it was just one of those movies that was just around and had a cool soundtrack and watched like a ton. I don't even remember the first time I watched it, but I do remember being super obsessed with the soundtrack. It getting me through some like some really tough times in my life and I remember going to see Stunt Temple Pilots for my birthday one Aww. year and Aww. they played The Big Empty which is the song that they play on the Crow soundtrack and it's like featured prominently in the movie like most of the songs are and it was like really emotional like it was one of the few times I got like really emotional at a concert and then subsequently I got really emotional a few years ago when Scott Weiland passed away I just his music a lot of the songs on that soundtrack like the Trent Reznor songs and stuff and the Gene Seibery songs like they all just meant a lot to me yeah totally and my experience with it was I had a friend my friend Andrew who was a year older than me and I was in like seventh grade and he was in eighth grade and it was like one of those like friendships that we had split up between schools and he would come over on the weekend at one point he would bring this movie and this is a cool movie that his brother watched and I probably won't understand it because I'm a lot younger you know us having nine months between us this immense gulf right and he put it on and I didn't quite understand it at first it took several rewatches but this idea where it's like oh no instead of playing you know Madden 92 on my Genesis we're gonna watch this movie where people die and it's not like an action movie but it's also it's like dark and it's, it's also really good and it was one of those things where it's like it stuck with me for a while until I could find a way to see it again right yeah yeah that's one thing that it's interesting about I'm 32 so I kind of grew up there's the whole idea of like people around my age that had like an analog childhood and a digital adulthood you know which is has some great benefits like the fact that a lot of my embarrassing behavior is not preserved <laughs> on the internet because I was like in high school and or I graduated high school in 2000 kind of before Facebook and all that yeah I think one thing that is easy to forget is like scarcity <laughs> like it used to be hard to find things that you wanted to watch again. And, you know, I remember having my parents rent the same movies over and over again for me at the store because I hadn't found a copy at a store yet or asked for it for my birthday or whatever, or had my dad tape it for me off the TV. So I remember having movies and things like that where it was like, I don't know how to watch this again, but it had an effect on me and like being kind of weirdly haunted by stuff that you're like, like one of those formative things for me was Ghost in the Shell. Oh, okay. Like I remember seeing like parts of it on like the sci-fi channel or you know, MTV super late at night and being like haunted by it. And I didn't really know what it was or how to get more of it or how to see it again. And then like, you know, ended up renting the VHS somewhere and then forgetting about it again for 10 years until Ghost in the Shell second gig came out. And I was like, oh my God, this is that movie I loved. <laughs> like that weird movie. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's like, we're kind of like haunted by those like weird, that those oddly scarce things that were important to us or, you know, TV shows that we would just watch sometimes, but we didn't catch them regularly. And then as an adult, like now you can Google what you remember about a TV show and you can watch the whole thing. Like there really isn't any more of that, like kind of being haunted by something uh, yeah. because we don't know what it is. The feeling of like being halfway through a movie and realizing you've seen it before. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, like, one thing that I always remember from my childhood is there's a lot of movies that I know I loved, like Neverending Story and Princess Bride and all that. But there are some movies that, like, my parents will insist that I watched or loved and I have no recollection of it. But, like, what they say makes sense. Like, the biggest example is The Dark Crystal. I was like, I had no memory of watching that movie as a kid, though I knew that I had. But I was like, I'm sure I saw it. I just don't really know anything about it. My dad was like, you were terrified of the Skeksis. <laughs> Which, let's be fair, the Skeksis are terrible. Yeah, and he was like, but you watched it all the time. And I'm like, that's so weird. Like that, I guess, yeah, I guess it's thematically with the podcast as well. So, you know, that I don't really necessarily remember that that part was part of my life, but it, it was. And it's funny you mentioned Dark Crystal because I had a similar experience with Labyrinth, which is where I had like this little, it was almost like a toolbox or like a, a money box with a handle on the side. And it was a yellow box and I put stickers all over the front of it. And that was like where I kept things like pictures of things or memories of things on the front of it. I had, you know, stickers of just whatever I, I would find. And one of them was a picture, a sort of head and shoulders picture of David Bowie as Jarek the Goblin King and a couple of other ones of the little goblins. Like there was the little cannon goblin and like some of the ones that would peek around the corner. So I clearly bought an elaborate like sticker kit. And I remember in that way that kids do where you'll ask something and you'll forget that you would asked it before. Yeah. And be like, I think dad knows it. Dad, who is this? Oh, that's David Bowie. Okay. But from a movie. Okay. But what, what movie? But things I know I had seen Labyrinth because when I saw it again years later, I'm like, oh yes, I remember this entirely. Sure, yeah. But just like not putting the two together. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's like really stupid reasons because it's like the part that imprinted on you as a kid is like some really minor visual aspect. Like I, I can't think of an example, but I know that I've been there and I've had friends be like more refer to a movie as like, it's like if someone was like, oh, The Crow, is that the movie with the little girl on the skateboard? <laughs> and it's like, well, yes, it is. That's not really how anyone would describe The Crow. But sometimes if you're a kid, you just like imprint on like, for example, the one kid in the movie. Yeah. So you're like, oh, that, that kid is me. And so it's like for your for you i remember she had a skateboard and onions make you fart and it's like that's yeah onions make you fart big time like (laughs) it's really not what it's the movie's about but yeah but as like a little kid it's like you know that becomes like the perspective character for you or that becomes like the the protagonist for you because you're just like wondering if her friend eric's gonna be okay and if he's gonna make it up for what happened to his wife and you know meanwhile all, all the adults it's like it's a movie about a guy whose girlfriend gets fridged so hard he gets superpowers from it and like (laughs) you know it's it's just a completely different thing when you're a kid yeah and i mean talking about you know different experience as a kid i remember looking back and wondering why the movie was spending so long on all the bad guys and thinking like why are we learning so much about top dollar and tintin and t-bird and fucking skank yeah. Why do I need so much of Skank in this movie when I like we should be looking at seeing what's happening with the crow? What's happening with this? But it's like then you realize, of course, you know, you have to have them as these horrible, fully fleshed out characters so you can feel satisfaction when they die. Yeah, exactly. And like as an adult, I mean, I've watched the movie so many times where I'm like, I get it now because like it's more than just like Eric punching guys that hurt him. It's like each of them are kind of like despicable in a different way. And there's the whole tie in with Sarah's mom. So like, you know, as an adult, it's like, oh, obviously. But but I don't know. Like, I think sometimes it's 
I guess this is probably a terrible thing for me to say as someone that writes for a living, but I sometimes really like storytelling where it's like the impressions and the characters moments you come away with matter more than whatever it actually took you to get there. Like the plot stuff is just kind of set dressing for these character journeys. I don't, I don't think that's a terrible thing to say at all. It's actually reminded me of, and I apologize, this is not appropriate to bring up in this context, but something that I read about Quentin Tarantino once where he was talking about, I like putting my characters in a room and letting them talk. Yeah. And just being like, I want to see what happens. Yeah. You know, just letting that kind of play out a little bit. And that doesn't have to be, like you said, it doesn't have to be plot driven. It doesn't have to be, oh, we're waiting for someone who's going to come in the door. It's like, no, we're going to sit and we're going to talk about stuff because that's what people do. And we're going to see what happens. And I think a lot of, for me, when I'm writing, a lot of character decisions come from me doing that in my head. And basically the characters asking each other, like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? You know? And then those answers sometimes become, you know, what happens? Or like, how would you get your way out of this? And, and you know, obviously they're, they're me, but sometimes it's just impulsive. Like if someone were to say, oh, well, you know, one of your characters could do this or that. I can usually say, like, I don't, like, for example, if you were to ask me, like, what's Octavia from Assassinista's favorite song? I might have some ideas, but I wouldn't know for sure. But if you were to name songs, I could absolutely be like, yes, she likes that one. No, she doesn't like that one. Like I definitively know how to react how they would. Like that's very clear to me. And when that's unclear to me, I like to think it's unclear to them too. Cool. It's reminded me of, I remember my friend and former guest of the show, Jojo Seams, did a really long Twitter thread about what would happen when various characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe would go and get ice cream or frozen yogurt and what flavors they would get yeah. and why and like like specific explanations and just be and like just going and she's like, I started and I just couldn't stop. And the minute I started thinking about it, you realize, okay, I know exactly what would happen if this happened. Exactly. And like, I mean, a lot of it is like, like, okay, like I'm a fan of Brian Michael Bendis' Avengers work, but a lot of his Avengers work is just superheroes in a kitchen eating cereal and talking. <laughs> and like, I don't hate it. Like, I'll always love a double page spread that's just a bunch of characters sitting around a kitchen eating cereal and talking. Like, <laughs> I'm writing a series that has double page spreads of people sitting in a roller rink talking. So I get it. <laughs> you know, those scenes... In my mind, they always happen. They don't always make it into the book. And when I get to put them into the book, it feels like a treat. Because I, I always feel like I've got, you know, I mean, maybe it's because like I grew up writing fan fiction, but it's like because I've always got that in the back of my head. The after credits stinger scene, the missing scene that wasn't written, whether it's, you know, just because it's personal or because the character was alone or because it's maybe something that doesn't visualize well like in comics you can't really you got to be creative if you want to give someone pages of just sitting on a bench and thinking to themselves yeah, like, you gotta justify it a little it's a bit. visual medium yeah. you've got to do something with that space i definitely agree with that that i just having them sit and talk i mean also you know i grew up playing D and vampire the masquerade and all those games where you know i learned to improv through like role playing and I think that informs my writing. All right, so there are two things that I have to ask from that series of statements. One, I need to know more about your fanfic. Or two, you can tell me about your Vampire the Masquerade game because <laughs> they're both very interesting to me. Oh. So what sort of fic did you write? So I started writing fanfiction when I was really, not really young, but like, you know, when I was like a teenager and the internet started to be a thing, I was a big fan of, I've never been much of a person to like post a lot of my fanfiction because I'm always really shy about it, but I've always read a lot. But I used to read a lot of fanfiction of the Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles, like Interview with the Vampire and all those books, which was like very, very hardcore, not the fic itself and content so much as the fact that Anne Rice used to be super against fan works and she would like go after people like people would get like cease and desist for writing fan fiction about her characters because she would like term search it and you know the internet was smaller back then you know there weren't 
as there were like you know private live journal communities and stuff but it wasn't like it was just, there was just less. It was just easier to search out and take down. And I was really into Final Fantasy, like the Final Fantasy games. I used to read a lot of fan fiction on them just because I was always really into the all the cute characters having various dynamics with each other. Yeah, as far as Vampire the Masquerade, I've been playing that for like over half my life at this point since I was in high school. And I still play. My husband runs a game. Usually he's running one or another kind of game and it's great. It's wonderful. I don't run as many games. I usually just play role-playing games. So did you have a particular character or clan or something that you would play? Or was it just sort of seeing how you go per game? I just write characters and see what happens. Like the character I'm playing right now is like a Ventru lawyer. Like I just like to find a concept that's interesting and play them and get inside their head. I don't really, I'm not the kind of person that like, you know, some people they role play and they have like one character and they always play that character in every campaign. That's not me. I like to have a bunch of different ones. Cool. Like them to live and die and make bad decisions and all (laughs) No, I've been thinking a lot more about role playing recently because I got to sit on my my first proper campaign that my friend Alex run and that was uh, playing Feng Shui. And again, it's very rules light and story light and it's just have a good time. And from the good time that we've had from that has caused me to look at a whole bunch of different things. So I'm always interested to hear more about that. Sure. And I know that, for example, like I used to do improv, and I, a lot of my friends I've met through improv, and my friend Ben, I was over at his house once, and like he went, oh, can you just go out into the garage and get one of the lamps that we need? So I went to his garage and had to step over a box full of like werewolf RPG books. Uh-huh. And I went, oh. I, I went back inside, and I'm like, you haven't told me something about you. Like, let's let's talk. Let's dish. Tell me all about you running your games of werewolf. Yeah, fun. So yeah, we're everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's surprising. There are a lot of people who work in comics like Jim Zub and Ray Fox and people who worked on like those White Wolf books and everything. Yeah, totally. So another question is, did you did you ever fuck with the Crow sequels or did you kind of stay away from that entirely? I am real weird about my interest in like follow-ups to things I love I usually don't love sequels I often just think that like stories are fine like I don't mind like fan fiction and I also don't mind if you know I so the the short answer is no (laughs) the long answer is I don't really care to watch them but I don't care that they exist but I'm like I just know that they're not right like (laughs) in my heart of hearts hey man David Boring is was in the last one (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) yeah I mean, and here's the thing. I was more of a spike girl. Because you were a right-thinking individual. (laughs) Here's the thing. It's like we talk about the scarcity model, right? And I can talk about how, like, especially in my early couple of years in Australia, I had The Crow Salvation on DVD, which is the third film with Eric Mabius and Kirsten Dunst and Jodie O'Keefe. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Uh, and the thing is, I watched that as much as I watched the original. But I didn't like City of Angels because everything was yellow. And I didn't understand why Iggy Pop was talking like that, even though I learned later that's how Iggy Pop talks. Right. <laughs> and the fourth one was so terrible, I never finished it. That was the one with Eddie Furlong as the crow and David Boreanaz as the villain. Oh, and Tara Reid was in that. How am I going to forget that? Oof. But yeah, it was like that third one. I remember watching it a bunch because, you know, I was young enough not to really differentiate between good and bad media. It was all just media to be taken in. Then rewatching it and like, and just like, again, I bought the soundtrack. Because it was at one of those $10 CD places because it was just like, oh, a soundtrack to a Crow movie. The first one was so good. I'm going to pick it up. And it's got, yeah, <laughs> it's got like Kid, uh, Kid Rock on there and uh, Tricky and all kinds of things. 
Tricky was on like every goth movie soundtrack in the <laughs> 90s and like 2000s. It's a rule. Totally. Yeah, my husband and I were talking about that recently about about how being a kid. There's a joke. I don't know if you watched the new like Nick Kroll show, Big Mouth. It was like an animated show on Netflix. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I really like Nick Kroll. One of the jokes that I really like is they're like, are we get? There's a, a movie trailer for a movie, and one of the little boys is like, are we gonna see it? And Nick Kroll's character is like, oh uh, yeah, it's a movie. <laughs> like, or that looks awesome. And he's like, yeah, it's a movie. And like, you know, I weirdly was a kid who pre- much preferred reading, but I would read anything put in front of me. But when it came to movies, I never really had that relationship with movies where I was like oh, I'll watch any movie you put in front of me. I was a pretty picky kid when it came to what I would watch on TV, but I would read anything. You could put like a real estate pamphlet in front of me (laughs) and I was like, I'm gonna read it. Like I would read anything, good or bad. Did you ever get something where you picked it up and you read it and you realized about halfway through that it probably wasn't for you? As far as I'm concerned, anything I can pick up and read is for me. <laughs> no, that may have been a leading question because I did have that experience where you only know, had like those. I've talked on the pre- previous shows about the uh, the Columbia House CD Club. Yeah, I remember yeah, those. There was the equivalent that was a book one where you could pick a bunch of books for a dollar. And at one point, I just picked a few things at random. And I got Jackie Collins's Hollywood Kids, which I read at the age of 14 and was very interested in because the- that book is all about drugs and banging. So I was just like glued to it. Yeah, no, and, and there was a lot of, I mean, probably part of why I liked the like interview the vampire books so much was because like I discovered them and read them and they were like very much vampire stories, but also very much these like eternal, intimate, psychosexual dynamics. And it was like, oh boy, like this. <laughs> <laughs> Like that was, and I think as a kid, there's, if it's something that I've, I, I've talked about before, like I used to work at a comic book shop and it was pretty hard sometimes because a kid would come in who was like 16 and was like, what should I read? And what I know that I wanted to read at 16 and what I can, can recommend to a 16 year old with a clean conscience are two different things. <laughs> because when I was 16, I would have wanted to read comics, basically like a lot like comics I want to read now. I would have wanted to read Saga. I would have wanted to read Low. I would have wanted to read Sunstone. I would have wanted to read... At the time, I was reading Sandman. I was reading Strangers in Paradise. I was reading stuff that didn't pull punches. And I wanted stuff that didn't pull punches, not stuff that talked to me like I was a kid. And I've always been like that. I've always been like, okay, give me the dark stuff, the icky stuff, the the, the complicated stuff. I've never really been a fan of like sex or gore just for sex or gore's sake. I am really into stuff that makes people feel something. And that's kind of always been the way I've been. So it's hard when I worked at a comic shop and, you know, I couldn't sell a 16-year-old saga because they're going to get home and open it and their parent is going to be like, who sold you full frontal nudity? Why does the Cyclops have giant testicles? Yeah, like I, <laughs> you know, I can't do that. I, I can't peddle adult content to children. <laughs> well, you could. You just are choosing not to. <laughs> I won't. Yeah. Like, regardless of the fact that, you know, when I was that age, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> Well, speaking of content, we do have a little time left over. Why don't you go into a bit about Assassinistas? Sure. And tell the good people about that. Yeah, so Assassinistas is a book I do through Black Crown at IDW, which is the new imprint that's headed up by Shelley Bond, who a lot of people are familiar with due to her 20 years she worked at Vertigo for DC, and she edited books like Fables and iZombie and books that are like, you know, bestsellers, household names now. So now she is 
working on her own imprint called Black Crown over at IDW. So the way we talk about Black Crown to people is that it's the cross street of comics and chaos. <laughs> Imagine a place and every book that comes out of Black Crown is somehow physically represented in this place. With that in mind, Assassinistas is tied to the place by a place called Winnie's Roller Rink. I'm like, I'm getting way ahead of myself. So the Assassinistas, the, the titular Assassinistas of the book are uh, three women who were kind of a Charlie's Angels type coterie in a time period that we call then, which is a lot of retro roller rinks and big hair and polyester clothing. Um, and they were, you know, badass, you know, assassin type chicks think you know charlie's angels quentin tarantino you know foxy brown that was them assassinistas came out of a desire to see those characters grow and change and have lives that are outside of their work so when we join the assassinistas in the book we meet them through octavia who is known as red october and her son dominic who is a college student who is desperately trying to just have a normal life because he kind of felt a lot of the after effects of his mother's chosen field and of course he gets pulled out of that normalcy when one of the assassinistas has a kidnapped child and she's pregnant with her second child so she can't go out and hunt down her kid for herself so you know it's one of those okay it's i'll go back into the last mission for you because you're my you know my sister in arms and so in need of fellow assassinistas because one has been missing for a long time and one is pregnant octavia brings along her son and her son's partner taylor who is a young man which is some surprise to octavia and that's kind of where the story starts very cool and there's like three issues that in comicsology right is it three three yeah i think let me i'm trying to remember for sure when number four comes out number four is out the 18th is the on shelf date so there are three out on Comixology or available at your local comic shop. Very cool. And you've written a bunch of other stuff too. So listeners, if you like, go on over to, what is the website? It's... Oh, well, the best place to reach me is, I'm on Twitter all the time, I'm at Teeny Howard, T-I-N-I, Howard, like the duck. Um, I have a website at teenyhoward.com, which is also run through Tumblr. So you can follow that if you're a Tumblr fan. I have a Facebook fan page, just... If you search my name, you can find it and follow me there. And I'll be at a couple conventions. I'll be at C2E2 in the U.S. They're all U.S. conventions. So, But hey, if you are part of an Australian convention and you're listening and you want to bring me over to Australia, I would love that. <laughs> People, listeners who go to Supernova, listeners who go to Oz Comic Con, make some noise. Get Teeny Howard out here. Yeah, that I would love to. Never been over to that. Let's see. It's hot. Things are expensive. We have spiders. The good news is I like warm weather, I have money, and I like spiders. Good, excellent. So. <laughs> uh, also, I gotta say, both Southern American and Australian goths are like the proudest goths on the planet because they are wearing like PVC coats and full face makeup in like ridiculous heat. Oh, I was joking on my Instagram the other day that I like posted a picture of me like sitting in an air conditioned car and it was like my hair was down and I had my leather jacket on and like lace and my makeup was all done. And then I like posted a selfie of me after going where I had been going and I came and it's like my hair is piled on my head. I have sunglasses, my leather jackets off, <laughs> like my lipsticks melted off. It's like the air conditioned pose on Instagram is not the same as the reality of like walking around <laughs> in North Carolina heat. Absolutely. All right, Tini, well, we're supposed to be can wrap it up thank you so much for coming on the show no problem thank you so much for having me I'm, it took us two tries but i'm glad we did it me too and i am now going to go listen to the crow soundtrack because i just so happened to have found it on spotify after we talked hell yes it's so good still and hey it can't rain all the time right <laughs> and onions make you fart big time. <laughs> all right thanks Dini.
Thank you very much to Teeny Howard for her time. When I asked Teeny about her signature cocktail, she said she hardly ever drinks anymore, but she loves strong dry flavors and champagne drinks like mimosas, French 75s, and Death in the Afternoon. I too am a big fan of champagne cocktails. And since I was feeling kind of basic this week, and am still in a house that is nearly half boxes, I'm going to take Teeny's suggestion and go with Death in the Afternoon. You see, Death in the Afternoon is a little bit famous because it was invented for one of those cocktail books where they're like, we're going to get a whole bunch of writers to each submit a cocktail. And then they asked Ernest Hemingway. The resulting drink is known for its decadence, its strength, and honestly, it's just goth as hell. Look at the title. And so I present Death in the Afternoon. Fill a flute with brute champagne. Float one and a half ounces of absinthe on top of the glass. Certain brands will float, other brands will sink to the bottom and get him sort of a milky coloring. This is fine, don't worry. Add two dashes of Angostura bitters to the top of the glass, and you're set. No shaking or stirring required. Some spirits are so quiet, you wouldn't even know they were there. Enjoy. Matthew is recorded slightly up the road in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, I promise this time, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathaview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathaview, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. Although I have been using Snapchat a lot less lately, I'm more on that Instagram story trip now. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could pledge a lot of money. That would impress me. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would really just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathaview, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one with every song I've ever used. Wait, let me check. That's like 16 hours of music including this song. It's Time Baby 3 by Medicine, and of course, it was used in The Crow. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'm going to be talking to writer Karen Corday about Sassy Magazine, Radio, and David Lee Roth's ass. No, that's not a joke. Join me, won't you? Join me, won't you?